0: and working with all of the wonderful families that make up this church. Um, and I take—I don't take for granted the opportunity that God has given me here and our family here to be here in Finley, uh, Ohio, and to minister with the families and the folks here at Trinity Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, I would like to have you open them up to Genesis chapter 18. Today I wanted to kind of address the idea of what, it look, what does it look like and to challenge you to be involved with your family or wherever you are, God has placed you as a great commission family. Because I believe that it is, impar- it is paramount that we, as a church, see ourselves engaged in family centered discipleship as part of what uh, God has entrusted me here uh, under the vision of Pastor Jennings. Uh, my desire is to help children and families engage in this great commission. Uh, in this great commission mode in their families, because I believe that it is paramount for what God has, how God has designed the family and how God has designed our church and how it impacts the world. Recently, I went back, and now that I've gotten to the point in life where our kids are getting older, um, I've been able to get to the point where we've been able to kind of like share some of like our childhood with our kids. I don't know if you've ever done that, but we recently went back and watched the movie that came out when I was a kid. Um, called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Anybody ever seen that one? And so we went and we, we were watching that with our kids. Our kids are not getting to the age where they can sit through a movie, uh, and it's awesome. But this movie came out in 1989, starring the, the lead actor Rick Moranis. Uh, if you're not familiar with, with the story, the story kind of goes where uh, this guy's an eccentric scientist. He comes up with this shrink ray. Uh, and then, of course, um, uh, bad things happen when the kids are upstairs. Uh the uh, fate has it that they get shrunken, and of course they get taken out uh, with the trash, and then they have the, the whole movie, they journey through the backyard trying to get back to to get uh, back to their normal size. Uh, anyway, uh, what I, what I, did, I knew that story as a kid, because I had seen the movie before, but have you ever had the experience where you go back and you watch a movie as an adult, and you see things that you had never seen before as a kid, well, thankfully, uh, this, this movie came out. It wasn't one of those things where, like, oh, man, I need to turn that off because I didn't realize that was in the movie. Well, actually, what I had never noticed before was the overarching storyline of the family dynamics that were going on in the movie. So as the opening uh, movie, yes, after the credits uh, go through, this is back in 18, 1989 where they had the credits before and not after the movie. And so my kids are like, what is going on? Why is this movie taking, so, what is all of this? All these words. And so after all that opening credit scene, uh, the, the scene opens up to a very dysfunctional family. Uh, the main scientist, uh, who is played by Rick Moranis, um, is having a difficult time with his wife. In fact, it, it, throughout the movie, she talks about how she's going to go, go live with her parents because they're not getting along in their marriage. And as, you, as these opening scenes open up, you see these two kids are kind of caught in the middle of this dysfunctional marriage. Um, and as they are trying to just make uh, trying to make sense of all of it, uh, the one young kid is kind of diving into school because he's more of a nerd, and the one young girl is thinking about boys and moving out, moving out, and getting out of the house because what's going on in their family dynamics is not so great. But as you see, as you watch throughout, watch throughout the entire movie, you see kind of this restoration effect going on in their family uh, as this husband and wife who. Couldn't stand to be in the same house together at the very beginning of the movie. Uh, They unify. Over uh, engaging with their kids because their kids have been shrunken and they're out somewhere out in the backyard and we're trying they're trying to find them and so they engage together uh, to try to to try to help their children and this is what happens by the end of the movie we see a restored relationship between the father and the wife uh, the the mother the husband and wife and the kids uh, and that continues on through <clears throat> some of the other movies two and three if you've ever seen those but. The real life story of Rick Moran, uh, Moranis is, is is kind of a lot like that. I don't know if you've ever ever seen his story, but he was kind of like a flash in the pan in the 80s, where he showed up uh, and his career was booming in, in the 80s. In fact, uh, throughout the 80s, he was uh, in, in about 15 different blockbuster hits, from ones from like uh, uh, the Honey, the kids to uh, blockbuster musicals to uh, Ghostbusters and beyond. Uh, he had a very blossoming career. Uh, in the uh, throughout the '80s, but after five years of marriage, uh, his wife tragically got breast cancer and she passed away, and so it left him with two children and a blossoming career in uh, Hollywood. And instead of pursuing and expanding his career, he decided that he would shrink back and he would focus on his kids and on his family. And instead of pursuing Hollywood and all the dreams that many people uh, dream about making their life all about, this single dad decided that he would only take the jobs necessary to provide for his family and that it, that the ones that would not uh, interfere with his family life and his kids. And in, in an interview many years later, uh, he was quoted saying this, "'I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever. My life is wonderful.'" But a very quick Google search will show that that is not the norm when it comes to the Hollywood lifestyle and the family dynamics that come with it. In fact, across dozens of websites scattered along the internet are long lists of what we would call deadbeat dads. Those, who would include, lists, those cl- lists include men like Eddie Murphy, Alec Baldwin, Carl Malone, who among their other misdeeds uh, have been even publicly uh, denouncing their own children and saying, those aren't, those aren't my children. Um, one one uh, in fact uh, at his at his son's high school graduation uh, was noted by saying the the, the son wanted after uh, uh, growing up without a dad who was very busy with his career and expanding opportunities and making money he had a conversation with his dad and his dad says I'm sorry son it's too late for a relationship now I can't imagine the pain of what it is to be one of those kids but you know what many times we face um, choices in our life when it comes to our family dynamics. And honestly, and, and including myself, we don't always get it right. We don't always engage the way that we should in our families, with our children, with our grandchildren, the way that we should. And Which is why I want to suggest to you this morning that every one of us, every Christian here today should be engaged in family-centered discipleship. Genesis chapter 18, we're introduced to a very important family uh, in the word of God. And we're given uh, access to a very uh, privy conversation that God has with himself. In Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 17, the scripture says this, "...and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation?" And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, that they shall keep the way of the Lord, and to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because of the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, if not... I will know. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we dive into the exposition of this scripture. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to enter into this place, to lift up our voices and worship to you. Father, I pray that as we look into the word of God today and as we discover the important Aspect that each and every one of us should be engaged in family centered discipleship. Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts not just knowledge, but illumination. That you would help the scriptures transform our heart and our heart into, and would turn into our actions and our actions and our words. And Lord, that our lives would reflect what is written on the pages of the scripture before us. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the importance of how you fit into the picture of family-centered discipleship, Lord, how we fit into it, Lord, and the dangers that surround us and the reasons why we should be engaged. Father, I thank you so much for what you're doing now, and I pray that you would have your will and way, Lord, that you uh, you would work in our hearts as only you can do through your scripture today and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned before, just a second ago, in this conversation in Genesis chapter 18, we are introduced to this kind of uh, conversation that God has with himself. If you're unfamiliar with this passage of scripture, this is when uh, God and the angels come to Abraham and to Sarah, and they are going to finally give them the good news that Sarah is going to be with child. This is also the place where Sarah uh, uh, laughs in verse 13. Uh, because she realizes that at the age that she's at, there is no way physically she can have children. But God's, when God makes, it, makes a promise, he is going to bring it uh, to bear even in the lives of old Abraham and Sarah because of the plan that God had for Abraham. So God here specifically has already chosen Abraham and his family, but here he's going to help them understand that this choice of choosing them is going to be for a purpose, that he is going to pass through them the covenant that God makes with them and their progeny, who, which would include the patriarchs uh, of, of several world religions and more importantly would give rise to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. But before this promise is fulfilled, God comes to Abraham with the news that Sarah is going to have a child. And that's where we pick up here in verse 18, where God has a conversation with himself about hiding from Abraham the things that he was going to do. And in this conversation, God recounts three activities that we're going to pick up on today today that I hope will motivate us to be engaged in family-centered discipleship because of these three activities. If you're taking notes, the first one is this, what God is doing. The first activity that we're introduced here in Genesis chapter 18 is what God is doing. In verse 17, the Lord says, "...shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him." Now God's plan to use Abraham and his seed and his offspring to allow the the Messiah to come and to be born into the world and through him all the nations would be blessed, is the is the 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 the, the linchpin to uh, his conversation here. But God had started something long before Abraham was on the scene. You see, God's plan. ...has been the same from the very beginning of creation. And that plan was to use families as the primary centers of discipleship and evangelism. Because God designed families to be discipleship centers... Most churches that I've been in contact with, and many of you probably have heard, uh, that are engaged in, in discipleship at any level usually use uh, one, or one, two, or three different uh, phrases. And maybe you've heard some of these phrases before. Some of the phrases that are used in, in churches today when it, come to, it comes to discipleship, they use phrases like, we do life together. Anybody ever heard a phrase like that, doing life together? Other ones like to say that life or ministry happens in the context, and it starts with the R, of relationships. Anybody have heard that phrase before? There are some that like to use the phrase that we have authentic community. Some of these phrases are used in connection with sometimes a Sunday school classes, small groups, or even a discipleship program. All of them keyed in on the idea of discipling or making disciples. All of these phrases encapsulate kind of the importance of relationships when it comes to, the, the, in the context of discipleship. But I want to say that there's one place that all three of these phrases happen often. In fact, I'm talking about every single day, and that is in the context of family. Who does life together more than a family? Who has the context of a relationships more than a family who is who is living together? Who has more authentic community than a mom and a dad and kids? I'm telling you, my kids have seen what goes on behind closed doors. All right, and, my, and your kids have too. They see the real, authentic you. No, uh, when it's not just the Sunday you, but the everyday you. In the beginning here uh, of the world, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the very first family, Adam and Eve. And in this first fam- with this first family, the very first thing recorded in Scripture that God says to this family, according to Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, is this. God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now we're gonna look at that and the importance of that in just a moment. But this is the first command that God gives to his created people. A few chapters later, after people mess it all up, and sin enters in the world, and death by sin, and the world is coming up and, and is and it is thoroughly evil, God kind of pushes the the, the reset button, if you will. Uh, and what happens? God chooses Noah, right? But God doesn't just choose Noah. God chooses a family. God chooses Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, right? God chooses a family unit to kind of restart, if you will. And when God chooses his family, and after this family Experiences this catastrophic worldwide flood and the waters recede, they get back out onto dry land, they make their petitions to God and the sacrifices to God, and what does God say to them? He repeats the same thing that he says in Genesis chapter 1 be fruitful and multiply. He restates this very first commandment that God had given to Adam and Eve, the very first family. And in the New Testament, when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus restates Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And those verses go as as such. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And verse 6, these words which I commanded thee this day shall be in thine heart. Immediately following the greatest commandment, God gives his intended mission of how he wanted to see this commandment come into practice in our lives in a very practical way. And then he gives a few examples in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. The following verse after this greatest commandment, here's what he says. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. That's the mission of loving God and serving him. Then he gives us a few examples. He says, This, thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Why? Why does God give this as the example and practicality and the mission of loving God with all of your heart, mind, and soul and following God's word? Why is this significant? I believe it's because God designed the family to be the discipleship center. That God designed the home in such a way as to advance the spiritual formation of the next generation. What's going on here in Genesis chapter 18? Well, God is choosing a family, as as he already has chosen Abraham and Sarah. And he is going to miraculously give them a child. He is going to give them Isaac. And through him, the nations were going to be be blessed because of their obedience. God is setting up in the context of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac a discipleship center that is going to not only continue but bless the entire world. More on that in just a moment. But God was doing something amazing. And he has from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1 to today, God is still creating families, and God still has the families as the center of discipleship for the next generation, for their spiritual formation. The second thing that we're, the second event that we're we're given to in our, our chapter today comes by the way of what the faithful are doing, what the faithful are doing. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, the scripture says this, for I know him. That he will command his children and his household after him. That they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken him. Now God sets up this context. Shall I hide From Abraham, what I'm doing. The large plan of what God was doing is that God was creating families to be a discipleship center. And specifically, in Abraham's scenario, he was going to have him uh, to be a discipleship center for Isaac, who then would continue down to Jacob and continue through the generations. But we see what the faithful are doing, and God Himself points it out as the reason as to why Abraham was specifically chosen for this, this incredible, uh, a lo- a world-changing uh, 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 scenario. God chooses Abraham to fulfill his global plan to redeem mankind out of all the other families of the earth, and he tells us why here in verse 19. He chooses Abraham because He know how, he knows how Abraham is going to handle the next generation's spiritual formation. He says, For I know him, that's Abraham, that he, Abraham, will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Why was Abraham's faithfulness important to God? Because God desired the faithfulness of the future generations, that God desired a godly offspring. And Abraham represents the faithful parent who rep- who engages in family-centered discipleship. But today we must face the harsh reality of why we should be motivated to be engaged in these in, in a spiritual formation of our children and the spiritual formation of our families. Because the harsh reality that we live in is this. According to a study done in 2021, just a few years ago, looking specifically at Christian parents who self-identified as having attended worship and strongly agree their faith is important, only a staggering 51% of them were very concerned about their children's spiritual development. That only half of what we would consider faithful church-going families were concerned about their children's spiritual development. A decade ago, in a book entitled You Lost Me, written by Barner Research President David Kinneman, shocked the Christian world by reporting that 59% of young adults, that's 18 to 25s, who had Christian upbringing had dropped out of church by their early 20s. Eight years following, another research study was done, and in 2019, the percentage had increased from 59% to 64%, suggesting that nearly two-thirds of young people who were raised in church will statistically withdraw from the church as they pass through their teenage years. While the reality of this can certainly be bleak, And certainly make us feel like, well, what hope is there? I want to also point out something that's also true. That these realities, these statistics, inform us that there is still one third of young people coined in this study, resilient disciples, who will dare to stand against the tide of their generation. That there still remains those faithful people, young people which is why it is important for us to engage in spiritual formation and family-centered discipleship now. One such story is a young, bi- ma- young man by the name of Hayden. A few years ago, not too far from where I grew up in the state of Florida, this young man, this young teenage boy, dressed for school in his shorts, showed up at a flagpole during what was called See You at the Pole. If you're unfamiliar with See You at the Pole, it is a nationwide Christian-centered event started back in Burlington, Texas in the 1990s by a group of students. And it's an annual event that's held nationally at every school where young Christian people stand outside by their flagpole and have a moment of prayer in a very public way, standing up for their faith and praying for their school and for their nation. But at first... Hayden thought that the other kids were simply just late. That he would stand out there, and by bowing his head and waiting just a few moments, he would eventually be surrounded by his other Christian classmates. But as the minutes passed by and no one came, Hayden was left standing alone, bowed head, exposed, abandoned, and embarrassed. Most people would have walked away. Maybe had a few choice words with their their classmates. Why weren't you there? You, You made me look like an idiot. But not Hayden. When plan A failed, he had the grit to go with plan B. Plan B was to stand alone on his school campus and to pray for his nation and for his classmates. His stance sparked a social frenzy that sparked a revival in the local Christian groups of his area. Hayden said later in an interview, as I stood alone and prayed, the cry of my heart was this, God, as people drive by, let them wonder, let their hearts be pricked. Hayden's mom later in a blog said this, my little boy, I'd rocked to sleep in blue airplane pajamas when he was sick. The toddler who loved Elmo and couldn't get to sleep without holding his VeggieTale characters had captured the attention of our entire community by standing alone, by doing everything we had ever taught him, everything we'd ever hoped he would do. Hayden that day became the model of what a resilient disciple in this generation looks like. But I want to tell you today that resilience isn't innate. It isn't just special to a few who were born with it. Resilience is the muscle discipleship builds. Resilience is the muscle discipleship builds. And God has designed families to impress the hearts and minds of children to love God. This is God's design for fathers, for mothers, for grandparents, to impress the hearts and minds of children to love God. The most well-known of all God's commands are probably the Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus chapter 20. Even those who aren't familiar with the Bible are generally familiar with one or two or three of these commandments, which sometimes still hang in our, 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 our halls of law. The first four are vertical. They, are, they deal with uh, our relationship as human beings to God. The final six are horizontal. They deal with our relationships with man and how we should deal with each other. And through these horizontal commands, they all seem to fit together. Things like don't kill, don't steal, don't cheat, don't covet, don't lie. They all seem to have the same kind of taste to them. In fact, coveting actually leads to all the rest of those, except the very first one. The very first horizontal command that we find in the Ten Commandments is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Now, keep in mind, the Ten Commandments are the only part of the Word of God that God wrote down himself. Now, when I say that, I don't mean to say that God did not inspire the rest of the book. God has written the whole book, and he did it through the men. But the Ten Commandments, God actually wrote out himself on tablets of stone and gave them to Moses. The very first horizontal command God writes down and gives to Moses is Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. You may know it. It goes like this. Honor thy father and thy mother. That thy days may be long upon the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Why is that significant? Why do I even point that out? Well, I point it out perhaps because it is the very first moral decision we are given when we come on this planet. Right now, my children are not, are not struggling with thou shalt not kill. Now, sometimes when I watch my daughter and my son play together, I sort of wonder, Right? But right now, they're not dealing with thou shalt not commit adultery. What they're struggling with right now is honoring their father and their mother. See, the purpose of parenting is to mold and impress kids' hearts and minds to love God, which is why the most important commandment for children is to honor through obedience. Ephesians 6, chapter uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Right, verse two restates what we just read in Exodus chapter twenty. It's the very first one given to us with a promise. God's response, uh, God's response to their parents' purposeful discipleship is paramount to their. Uh, their Let so me say that again: a child's response to their parents' purposeful discipleship is paramount to their spiritual formation which is the ultimate reason why I believe God hates divorce. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says that God hates putting away. That is Old English for divorce. Now, I'm a child of divorce. My mother and father were divorced. The grandparents who helped raise me and helped nurture my spiritual condition were both in their second marriages by the time I came along. And that is not the focus of my sermon today, but I want to tell you today that the New Testament gives us a little bit of insight into the mystery of Christ and the church and how it's illustrated through that marriage covenant of between the husband and wife. But I believe that God's hatred for divorce, according to Malachi chapter two, verse 16, runs even deeper than the fact that divorce breaks up that imagery of Christ and the church. And the reason why I say that is because of the context of where we find in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, gives us a little context for this this phrase, that uh, that God hates divorce. Verse 14 says this, Yet ye say, wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Verse 15 says, And did not he make one? Yet had he had the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? Why is it that God creates this covenant relationship between man and wife? Why is this so precious to him? Why one? He says this, That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of thy youth. Verse 16 says, God hate putting away. God see God's design for the family and for parents. and the reason why God made the two one is to raise godly seed who will love God and who will worship Him. And the reason why God hates divorce is not only because it defaces the image of Christ and the church, the mystery which is given to Paul and now to us in this New Testament age, but it disrupts his plan to pass faith to the next generation. The reason why God hates divorce is because it destroys and and, and has the potential to disrupt the next generation. Generation's spiritual formation. This is why the instruction to fathers in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, I believe, is so clear. It says in Ephesians 6, 4, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Straight shooting from God Himself to fathers and to parents. A godly father, and by extension, a godly parent needs to be about making disciples of their children if they are to fulfill the great commission of Jesus in their lifetime, which leads us to our final point. We see in, in Genesis chapter 18 what God is doing, that God reveals to Abraham and to us through his word that his plan from the very beginning is to create families who will be discipleship centers. And that these families, when filled with faithful men and women, will pass the faith baton on to the next generation. Will impress upon the hearts and minds of their children to love God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul. But where there is light, there is also often darkness. And we see in verses 20 and 21 of Genesis chapter 18 today what the world is doing. What the world is doing. You see this third activity of what the world is doing. I believe there is no mistaking of the reason why God connects these two together. I don't believe that it is by happenstance that he will deal with this issue. Right on the heels of putting together the family discipleship center that will go on to change the world and the nations by bringing forth the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 through 21 says this The Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because of their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. Without doing a deep dive into Genesis chapter 19 and the following narratives, what we find is that God connects the reality of the world around this discipleship center that he is building in Abraham's family. And it includes the influential future uncle to Abraham's son, Lot, who is now residing in the city of Sodom. Probably the two most well-known cities outside of Scripture Even those who are not Bible-believing Christians, there's probably no two cities more well-known than Sodom and Gomorrah, the names who which today are still associated and synonymous with a certain set of sin and wickedness. At this time, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah had become cesspools of sexual promiscuity, and they're permeated with this, I should be able to do whatever I want with whatever I like attitude. So much so that the practice of sex with whoever, whenever was thought of by the greater majority as their right. What do we see in our world today? That the ruler of this world, Satan, hasn't really changed his script all that much. Today, the traditional nuclear family is in crisis and our world is orientating itself more and more to be at odds with what the word of God declares as truth. And with how God has set up the family. Some years ago, the Huffington Post dropped an article entitled, Is the Church Dying? And it gave a rather scathing view of conservative Christianity and conservative belief and made three suggestions that they believed would be essential should the church have a viable future. And here's what they said. Number one, if the church is going to have a viable future... They need to, one, stop pretending that the Bible is an infallible book written by God. Number two, they need to end their losing war with science, biology, and anthropology. And number three, they need to concede that they have lost their discriminatory war on gender, race, and sex. That was their suggestion. That if the church and Christianity were to have any viable future in the world we live in now that all anchors to truth should be pulled up that we should concede that we were wrong about what the bible teaches about creation about the world about people this has been satan's goal for some time satan's goal is the same as it has been from the beginning to destroy godly families and their growth in order to destroy the growth of the family of God. Because the two are connected. Because God designed families as the engine that will fill the earth with his worship. You see, a family-centered discipleship unit is paramount. It is part of God's plan for the great commission. How can I say this? Well, let's back up backtrack a little bit. Malachi chapter 4. It's the very last chapter in the Old Testament. The very last chapter in the Old Testament before there is hundreds of years, 400 years of silence from God. The very last verses of Malachi chapter 4 are verses 4, 5 and 6. And here's what God says. Here's how God ends the last Part of the, very, uh, of the Old Testament, before there is 400 years of silence. God says this, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto you in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers." Lest I come and smite thee with a curse, and that is the end of the Old Testament revelation. And there is four hundred years of silence where God does not give any new revelation to what would, might, would account to four generations of His people. Then you fast forward to the New Testament, and then God breaks the silence of four hundred years by sending His angel Gabriel to speak to a priest by the name of Zechariah. This Zechariah, whose wife in her advanced age is expecting, while he is ministering to the Lord, is visited by this angel. And the angel Gabriel breaks this 400 years of silence, and here's what the angel Gabriel says in Luke chapter one, verse 13 and following. The angel said unto him, "'Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, "'and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, "'and thou shalt call his name John.'" And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. And he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall neither drink wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Verse 17, here's what he says. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. Do you see the link between 400 years of silence? The last thing God chose to say was to talk about families coming together. And when Jesus comes on the scene, the very first thing the angel declares as the messenger of God to people is that the fathers are going to turn their hearts back to their children. Why is this significant? Why, why do I even point this out? How can I make such a bold claim as to say that God had designed families as the engine that will fill the earth with his worship, that will help push forward the mission of the Great Commission? The reason why I say it is this, because when a parent's heart is turned towards their children in family-centered discipleship, and a child's heart is turned to their parents in obedience, uh, in, in, in obedience, everyone is ready for Jesus. Everyone is ready for Jesus. What about reaching the whole world? What about well, how does the family engage in this great commission? I don't still quite understand what you're saying. Well, let me let me let me give you a, a table. I like tables. Let me give you a table that kind of shows you in comparison the Great Commission, which is in Matthew chapter 28, to the very first commandment that God gives us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And I want to point out to you their focus, their scope, and their target. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, what we call the Great Commission, goes like this, right? He, tell, he tells them to teach, make disciples of all nations, and to teach them to observe all things. The focus and scope and target of all three of those, is to teach. This is the idea of multiplication, making disciples. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God says, Be fruitful and multiply. What is its focus? Also multiplication. All nations, what is the scope? It's everywhere. Every ethnos, every nation. Replenish the earth. What is the scope? Everywhere. What is the target? Teaching them to observe all things. Subdue it is how it's said in Genesis chapter 21. What is the target? Both conformity, and not just conformity for conformity's sake, but conformity to God's plan. You see, raising kids is part of the Great Commission, and it is part and parcel to it going forward. And I want you to know this that the natural flow of the gospel message cannot skip your family. Because oftentimes when we think about the Great Commission, we think about the Great Commission for, in this perspective. We think, well, there's a personal responsibility. I need to respond to the gospel. And then we think about the world around us. They need to respond to the gospel. Right? We need to send missionaries to Africa, to Argentina. We need to go around the world with the gospel. I need to respond to it, and then I need to be involved in sending people to, the great, to, to those fields that are ready to harvest, as Jesus says. But what we often miss is the path from here to there. And that path naturally is through your own family. Acts chapter 2, Peter gives his famous uh, 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 sermon at the day of Pentecost. And here's here's what Peter says. Peter said unto them, verse 38, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for this promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Do you see that progression? You, your family and everyone else. Many times we think about the Great Commission in a very two-dimensional. i got to respond, and the nations need to respond. But what about the third dimension? What about your own family? If you're excited about reaching the world, but you forget to reach your own kids, you're missing the point. Wow, that seems pretty bold, Pastor Corey. But I still have a question. What about the local church? How does the local church engage in the Great Commission? Because it's one thing to say, and it's very bold to say, that families are what God is going to use to move forward the Great Commission. But what about the local church? Shouldn't shouldn't that play part in it? And it does. And here's how. See, the church isn't a building. It's not an organization. What is the church? The church is us. The church is made up of Who? Families and families, discipleship centers. God's natural ordering from Genesis chapter 1 forward is the family. And that is why the early church gathered together. And when they gathered together, you could see it so clearly. Because when the early church gathered together, they met together as families. And they went from house to house. Whose house? Well, the different families' houses. And they had all things in common, praying and worshiping and sharing and growing in Christ. Because when families are discipled well, the world also is going to be discipled. Because part of the discipleship process is evangelism. That idea of making disciples is not just discipleship, it's also evangelism. That when we disciple our kids and teach our kids that evangelism isn't some superior level or threshold, but is part of our everyday life. And our kids are seeing us be evangelists in our own workplaces and in our own families and in the restaurant. And as they catch a vision for that, they too will catch a vision to evangelize their world. This is one of the reasons why it is so crucial in the early churches that anyone who was going to take the role of a pastor or the master discipler in the church had to already be doing this in their own home. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, God lays out some rules for the pastor. And it says this in verse 4, He has to be one that ruleth well his own house having his children in subjection in all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how, how, she, how, how shall he take care of the church of God? God was so uh, 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 enthralled with this idea that there was no way God was going to allow anyone to pastor those families who didn't already have this, or at least continue to have this under wraps in their own family. This is why it is so important that families understand that it's not God's plan for the church to disciple their kids, but it's their own responsibility to disciple their children. While the church can come alongside and help, I often use this in our children's ministry trainings, I say the church is like a vitamin. You can't live off vitamins, right? But it does come along and help and fill in the gaps where we need it. But the church can do that. The church can come alongside the family and other families can come alongside other families and help encourage each other in this discipleship uh, process. That's what the Bible says when the older are teaching the younger. That's why every choice and every part of your family dynamic is a discipleship opportunity because the success or failure of your discipleship program in your own family has both a local effect and a far-reaching global effect. Because God designed families who gather together in local churches to be the engine that will fill the earth with his worship. In closing today, I want to leave you with a few thoughts. I know in here there's really probably two groups of people. Two groups of people, but both have equally important roles to play in family-centered discipleship and Great Commission families. The first one is very obvious. It's the one with the group with children. If you're a part of that group and you have children and children in your home, what can you do? Well, first of all, you can lead your family. But you can only lead your family to places that you are going yourself. It is folly to say to your children, you need to live this certain lifestyle and at home not be demonstrating what that lifestyle looks like. It's not going to work. You can practice today by laying a foundation for the future and understanding that the choices that you make now are laying the foundation for your children's spiritual formation and the choices they will make in the future. And you can understand the reality that the church partners with you, but it can't replace you. There's another group in here those without children. And I want to tell you today that this message has not been wasted because, well, I don't have any children. My children are are long gone, or or I'm not married, or I don't have any children of my own. We don't have any children yet as a family. I want to tell you that this message has not been wasted on you because you still have an integral part to play in this church and in this Great Commission families idea. How? For, For those of you who don't have any children yet, I want to suggest to you that right now, the way that you can prepare is to prioritize your own discipleship growth, which is one of the reasons why we're having an outpouring of discipleship groups and Sunday school. One of the reasons why we provide these opportunities here in our services is because you need to take seriously your discipleship growth now while you have the time on your hands and before the burdens and the opportunities of child-rearing come. Secondly, you have the opportunity to pour into others like no one else does. I think it's one of the reasons why Paul makes the argument about young pastors and about it's good for them to marry, but if, if they're not gonna marry, they have more time to dedicate to the, 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 the ministry and to the, the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have any kids, how can you apply this to your life today? Prioritize your own discipleship growth and figure out a way to pour it into others. Maybe some of you, and rightfully so, you've, ha- you've had children in your home. They've grown up, and now they are probably having children of their own, and you're raising uh, uh, uh your 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 kids are raising their kids, maybe even great-grandkids. I want to tell you that. If your kids have already left, this message hasn't been wasted on you either because you have to realize that the potential of the impact and the continued influence that you have on both your kids and your grandkids, that your time of discipleship-centered families isn't over, that you can continue to have an impact like never before. And number two, you can take advantage of the availability that God has given you now in your time of life through serving and mentoring other families. That's my testimony. I mentioned earlier that I was a a child of a a divorce. A lot of my formative years, spiritually speaking and physically speaking, I lived in a single-parent home. And there were grandparents, godly grandparents in my family who took the charge and took the lead to help me realize the importance of the gospel and the, realize the importance of growing in my own spiritual formation. And I went to a church that was filled like this with older couples who saw their lives as a uh, to be on mission, who served in our children's ministry programs and who poured their lives into me, who showed up with my grandparents to church. And that's what I want to see happen at our church. I believe it's already happening to some degree, but I would love to see it happen even more. That the the, the family of Trinity Baptist Church would be so engaged in this idea of family-centered discipleship that they would not only prioritize their own spiritual growth, but would pour it into other people who would see the kids that run around this facility and they would see them as influential to them, influencing them to be raised as a godly generation, as a generation who takes seriously the final words of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples. It made a difference in my life. My dad, who I don't often speak of, um, the only connection I ever had to him was a few letters, and I brought them today. That he wrote to me from, from a jail cell. This is all that I have of my relationship with my dad. And through my formative years as a young man who grew up in church, I struggled. And I struggled with, well, if my father wasn't there, and God says he's my father, what kind of a father is he? And I want to tell you that I learned. From Scripture, because of the investment that older couples had in my life in my children's ministries that I, that I, in my Sunday school my junior church that my father is one who will always be with me that he is my everlasting father and that though my father here on earth might have tucked tail and left my father in heaven will never leave me nor forsake me and that is because of a church of families who saw me and who poured into me. And I want to challenge you that every single one of us in here today, we all have a part to play, and that we all must be engaged in family centered discipleship. Would you stand to your feet today, with your heads?